for most of her life. She founded the Ellen Webb Dance Company in New York City in 1979 and contributed to continue to choreograph and perform with her company after she moved to the Bay Area in 1984. She lives with her husband in Oakland where they raised their two children. Ellen began her Zen practice with Joko Beck and Diane Rosetto at the Bay Zen Center in 1992. In 2002, she began practicing at BZC. She received lay ordination from Sojin Roshi in 2010 and was a Shuso in 2018. Her Dharma name is Maiko Kaishin, Dancing Light, Open Heart. Our ears are open to hear you. <laughs> so welcome. I just want to say that I'm appreciating these Saturday morning uh, schedules in part just because it brings so many of us together. And right now that's feeling especially good to me. Um, I want to welcome people who are new or newer to Berkeley Zen Center in particular, but also some people we haven't seen for a long time who are with us today. Um, it's nice to have everybody here and also our Sangha that's on Zoom this morning. Um, <clears throat> so I think probably almost everyone, but perhaps not everyone, has heard that our um, habit and teacher Alan Hosan Roshi um, has been in the hospital for five and a half weeks or so um, in very serious condition. First, he was um, in the ICU, and um, more recently, he's still in the hospital but in less intensive care, and um, he's recovering uh, somewhat miraculously and wonderfully. Um, but it's, um, he's still on, you know, some level of, of life support at this point. And um, so I just want to say again, it feels right now particularly good to be with you all. Um, so I will say that Hozan's condition, which came on quite suddenly, or sort of shockingly, I would say, um, has brought us opportunities to practice um, and also new ways to work together and to care for each other and to be together. And, um, you know, I really felt that and noticed it and appreciated it 
really from everyone. Um, <clears throat> I also know that love has really poured forth toward Hosan and his family from the Sangha here, but also from really all over the world. Hosan uh, had communities in Europe and Asia and, and different communities, a music, a whole music community as well as a you know socially engaged community and of course his many Buddhist communities. And um, and you know I feel like some kind of spigot of love opened up in our Sangha too. And I'm, I'm just gonna tell you my <laughs> story about this which is that um, I have known Hosan for probably 30 years. Um, and I've always considered him a friend and a Dharma brother, and more recently, you know, our abbot and teacher. Um, and I've always, um, liked him. He's been very kind to me and I've always liked him. Um, but I think if you'd asked me, I, I would not have used the word love. I would not have said I love him. And um, just not the verb I would have used. Um, so um, when I first went and saw him in the ICU, uh, which was really quite soon after he arrived there. Um, I, and they were kind of being careful about how many people were visiting him at the time. And um, so when I went in, I was actually alone with him, aside from the nurses and caretakers who were coming in and out. And when I went in, I didn't speak to him and I didn't touch him, but I just sat down in a chair quite close to him. And um, he was in a very deep coma at that time. He was sedated. And um, he was um, kind of attached to the most amazing number of tubes and monitors, you know, which is kind of not that unusual in the ICU, but it was really shocking because it had only been a short time before that I had been talking to him in the yard. So, um, you know, it, it was quite, quite an adjustment, really quite a shock to see him in this condition. But when I sat down and just sat with him, I just kind of out of the blue felt this upwelling of love for him. And, um, um, you know, it was kind of a, you know, sort of unconditional love, which we talk about here and in our practice, but I can't say I really, I know about it and I, and I know it's something real, but I don't experience it that frequently in this way. And I didn't just feel it for him, I felt it for, the nurses who were coming in and out. And I felt it for all the people, his family certainly, but you know, there were many people from the Sangha in the waiting room and 
there were people I knew, and then there was people I didn't know, like his sister I'd never met before, and I felt it for her, and I felt it for, you know, the other people in the ICU who were lying in their beds, and their loved ones who were, you know, waiting to care for them and um, support them. And I felt it actually when I walked out of the hospital toward pretty much everybody, and when I walked home down the street, it was still sort of real for me. So it was quite a strong experience, and um, you know, actually, other people told me they had very similar experiences. It wasn't, I didn't have this, just me. It was quite a number of people mentioned something similar. Um, and um, I've had this experience. Actually, I had it when my children were born also, and I've, I've had it at other times, but it made me wonder if when you're really in the face of life and death, um, you know, when that's very real, um, this experience of oneness, of real connectedness and, um, you know, Love is also becomes very real. Anyway, it did for me at that time. And um, you know, at this point, it's not as tangible to me. It's not as visceral. But um, because I had that experience, I sort of feel like I know it in a different way than just talking about it or believing in it. Um, so that was kind of a gift to me. Um, and I'll say another gift, and I use that word a little more hesitantly, is um, the gift of the opportunity to practice with uncertainty and not knowing. When I first went to the hospital, um, we really didn't know if Hosan would live or die. It was really, really uncertain. And, you know, even now that he's regained some consciousness, we don't know the trajectory of his recovery. And, um, you know, we don't know if he'll be back here as our abbot. We don't know if he is, how long a time it will be. We don't know, you know, what the recovery will be sort of what the trajectory of it is, I guess, you know, and, and actually nobody knows. The doctors don't know, and, you know, the people close to him don't know. None of us know. And, um, we don't know what will happen at BCC. What will change? What won't change? I'm going to divert a little bit here and just tell a story. Um, I was here in the morning early and I walked out. It was kind of a foggy morning and I was, you know, I was standing outside and um, I had another experience. This was just a few weeks ago where I'd had a minor car accident and I didn't know kind of, I mean, nobody had heard, but I didn't know you know, what the insurance would do and what I had to do and whether the car would be okay. And, um, you know, and I was also thinking a lot about Hosan. And <clears throat> so I 
I was standing out there and somebody came up to me and said, um, how are you? And I said, um, I feel like I'm living with a lot of uncertainty. And he said, Ellen, we're always living with a lot of uncertainty. And of course, I know this is true. This is our teaching here, and this is our practice, that we live always with impermanence. But um, I just want to say that um, much as I appreciate many things about this Sangha, um, you know, how we work together, how we care for each other, how we support each other, how really how we're friends to each other. Um, the thing I appreciate the very most is the way that people remind us of our practice. And, um, and it happens a lot. It really happens a lot. And this was just the most kind of informal exchange where, you know, I said what I said and was sort of in my head about it. And this other person just said, this is always the way it is. This is, this is life. And, um, you know, it just sort of woke me up. And um, I just appreciate that so much. And, and so many of you make that contribution to me. And I know you make it to each other. Um, and, and really, it doesn't happen so much with other people, you know, with, with the other sets of my communities. So I especially appreciate it. Um, so back to uncertainty and not knowing. Um, just this week, I read in the New York Times, um, and this was an interview with a sociologist who focused on fear. And he, he was talking about the fear in our culture, in our society. And he said, fears stem from uncertainty. Um, point blank, that was his thesis. Um, so we practice with impermanence, but when things are changing and when they're unstable um, and our equilibrium is upset, uh, our minds get very active, or often they get very active. And I want to say here that that's kind of their purpose. Their, that's the purpose of our mind is to, you know, try to keep us safe and to keep us stable and to keep you know, to sort of understand what's happening. And it's, you know, it's part of our DNA. It's really, it's really what our mind does. Um, so I'm not, you know, saying that we can get rid of it. But, um, you know, this kind of, we can watch this desire to sort of hold on and, and fix things. And, you know, I was thinking of that word as, you know, we want to fix things, but also we want to fix them so that they're stable, so that we know what's happening. Um, we want to be certain, I think. And um, we want to return things to stability, just, you know, to try to kind of make things, like I say, sort of known instead of unknown. And, um, you know, people call us when the mind gets very active in this way, they call it the monkey mind. 
And I think of like my playing ping pong with my grandson, who's three and a half, and his idea of ping pong is to hit the ball as hard as he can, anywhere, anytime. So it goes to the ceiling and the floor and to the walls and under the bed and it rolls out, he picks it up and he hits it again. And it just, it's just like all over. And that really can be the way that my mind feels. Um, and um, so when that happens, we can notice where we go with it. Um, you know, how much we want to know the future and how hard it is to let go of wanting that. And, um, you know, noticing our hopes and our kind of prayers even, that things turn out in a way that we like and, and not in a way that we don't like. Um, and, Um, I just say in here that one of the things that I've noticed is how much of that thinking is self-centered. Um, you know, kind of taking care of ourselves. And well, I'll just say this is a this is a quote from Suzuki Roshi, and it's from Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, and you've probably many of you read it many times, but um, it's one that I think of a lot. Um, thinking is rather self-centered, but sometimes it is not. This is from the original transcript. But almost in everyday life, our thinking is 99% self-centered. Why do I have suffering? Why do I have trouble? This kind of thinking is 99% of our thinking. And I probably first read that 50 years ago. And at the time, I really rejected it. I, I thought I was a pretty nice person and I really cared about other people. And, um, you know, but, you know, our practice, like, is to study the self. And uh, when I really watched it, it was, it actually was shocking to me how, how much I was sort of self-preserving here. And even when I was concerned about someone else, like, say, my children, you know, they were suffering, I realized I wanted them to feel better because really when they suffered, I suffered. And um, there's that great quote about, you know, you can only be as happy as your most unhappy child. Um, and, um, you know, so even though it looks like it's about somebody else, you know, you really have to check it out. <laughs> um, so, I was listening to a talk by Steve Stuckey, and, and one of the things he said was that we come to Zen because we want to get beyond our self-interested thinking. I'll say that again. We come to Zen because we want to get beyond our self-interested thinking. And um, I just want to point out here, he does not say to get rid of it. It just says to get beyond it. And um, I'll say that one way that we do that is through our Zazen sitting practice. Um, and I really think of it as a practice. Um, 
Sojin used to say, you should always know where your breath is. But really, that takes practice. And I won't say that I always know where my breath is, but that takes practice to pay attention to your breath in that way. And um, so when we sit, um, I would say this is really, we are embodied. This is an embodied practice. And we create the most stable base that we can create for ourselves, um, sort of a tripod in some way or other, um, which is sort of a grounding for all this um, busy thinking that can happen. And, um, and then we sit up straight so that our spine is long and our breaths can move down. And again, something used to really emphasize allowing the breath to um, move all the way down to the hara or to the lower belly. Um, sometimes I think of my mudra as sort of a, uh, a, a catcher or a dream catcher for my, for my breath. So I really aim it down toward my hands. Um, and the hara, you know, in other, well, in our culture, you know, we're kind of encouraged to keep our belly very hard and flat, but um, it's really not possible to breathe into your belly if it's hard. So it, it takes actually some practice to, to let it go. And um, in Eastern practices, the hara is sometimes referred to as the second brain. And, um, you know, we, we say things like, I know that in my gut. Um, and, and it, you know, it's a, it's a different way of knowing than knowing something in our mind. <laughs> um, maybe it would be intuition. So Jim used to talk about that quite a lot. Um, but um, I guess even science now is talking about the, the belly as a second brain because, you know, the intestines um, manufacture 95% of our serotonin. And um, that's the hormone or neurotransmitter that, I guess it's both, I think. Um, that regulates our mood and our cognition and our mental health and various other important things. So um, sort of connecting to that part of ourselves, I think is, you know, really part of our practice to bring our breath all the way down to our belly to really make it a deep inhalation and a deep full exhalation, a letting go. So maybe a little for me more emphasis on the exhalation, probably not true for everyone. Um, but it brings our awareness into our body. Um, and really so much of the information that we have comes from our body, all of our feelings, our fear, our feelings of fear, our feelings of anger, our feelings of joy. We feel those in our body, our heartache and our, and our love. We feel those there. That's how we know them. Um, and actually, you know, we take in everything through our body, our eyes, our ears, our nose, so on. 
Um, so I feel like when we practice, we sort of shift the balance so that all of our attention isn't on our thinking mind. It, it sort of disperses into our, our body and, and actually sort of beyond. Um, so that, you know, the, the intensity, the urgency of the thinking mind kind of shifts and it becomes uh, sort of less where our awareness is. Gives us a little perspective, maybe. Um, I'll just say that there are other activities, and of course, mine is primarily dancing, um, where one can have an experience of this where, you know, it's not like your mind isn't active. You know, you're counting, you're trying to figure out when you come in or when you leave or where you go. But your body is really in charge. Your body is really what's moving or where your attention is. And um, this is true in sports and making art or music or other activities that people call being in the zone where, um, you know, we're sort of more embodied, where we're getting information from other sources in our thinking mind. Um, so again, we don't get rid of this very useful mind, and we don't even get rid of our self-interested self, um, even though at times we would like to when our mind is very agitated, or when we just notice how constantly it's working to preserve us, um, or just how self-centered we are. You know, there are just times when we, we don't want to have it. And um, somebody said to me recently, I just wish I could have a vacation for myself. Um, and, you know, I know that feeling, but... I'm going to tell a story, and this is a koan that is very well known, and most of you probably know it very well. It's actually quite a long story, and I'm only going to read part of it or tell part of it. Um, uh, but um, it's been told by many people and commented on by many people. It's probably a story from like the ninth century. Um, in China, and um, <clears throat> it's, um, I mean, it's interesting, it's, of course, been told over the centuries, and, but even now, it's told in very different ways, and, um, and the commentaries are very different, which is kind of the, the nice thing about Collins is you get to interpret them the way that you want to. Um, and so this one is about Basso, who was a uh, very strong student. He was actually a transmitted priest at this time, theoretically. And he was a very big man and very determined and had a very loud voice. And um, he went on after this story to become a famous teacher with many disciples and many people who went on to teach after him. Uh, but this is early in his career. And um, <clears throat> he was sitting very determinedly in a hermitage. This koan is called Polishing a Title. Um, and his master, Nangaku, came to visit him. And as I say, this story sounds a little bit to me like he's kind of 
putting down Basso in some way, but really Basso was kind of, you know, a very successful and good student. So this is more like a Dharma exchange than one might think. So um, Nagaku asked Basso, um, virtuous worthy, what do you aim at doing zazen? And sort of like, what are you doing? Why are we practicing? What's this all about for you? And Vasa um, said, I'm aiming at becoming a Buddha. And again, um, I think this is kind of a common idea in, you know, many Buddhist traditions that um, you practice in order to become an enlightened person. This is from Okamura's commentary, free from ego, being ego-centered. So you get rid of that self-centered part of your, yourself. And we're, um, we're deluded. We want to become Buddha. We want to become enlightened. And through our practice, we will get there. Um, so at that moment, at this moment in the story, Nangaku picks up a tile. And, um, you know, these were kind of old, dirty tiles that had fallen off the roof. People have different ways of interpreting the tile, but this is the one I like that they, apparently there were a lot of wooden houses in China that burned down and the tile roofs would just crack and fall to the ground. So they were useless and, and um, dirty. And again, this sort of symbolizes our deluded self. And he, he picks up the tile uh, and Basso says, Master, what are you doing? And, um, and Nagako starts to polish the tile. And um, so Basso wants to know what he's doing. And, and Nagako says, I'm polishing the tile to make it a mirror. And again, the mirror is sort of a symbol of, you know, kind of the great mirror wisdom that reflects everything without, you know, um, you know, just as they are and, um, you know, doesn't claim or reject. And um, so Vaso um, says, how can you make a mirror by polishing the tile? And um, Nangaku says, how can you become a Buddha by doing zazen? And the story does go on, and, and I encourage you to look at some of the longer versions. This is actually where Suzuki Roshi stops in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, but there's a lot more to it, and it's kind of worth looking at. But, um, but I think, you know, the point of this is that we have this desire to get rid of part of ourselves, and our practice is really so much about not clinging, but also not rejecting. So that includes our self-centered mind. And, um, you know, this desire to not have these agitated thoughts, um, these, this whirling thinking that we sometimes have, um, you know, we have to include that too. So again, we can see beyond it and we can even experience other things, but uh, we have to include it. You know, sometimes 
I like the idea of being patient with it. Um, I'll just finish uh, this part of what I want to say. Am I almost out of time? I'm getting there, yeah. Uh, this is what Suzuki Roshi had to say about this. When you are polishing a tile, that is enough. The purpose of our practice is not to make the tile a jewel. As long as you are sitting, that is practice in its true sense. So it is not a matter of whether it is possible to attain Buddhahood or whether it is possible, possible to make the tile a jewel. And so Jinroshi said something sort of related, which is, when we sit zazen, it is called samadhi. This is the samadhi of sitting still and letting everything appear, but holding on to nothing. Samadhi is a state of being free. That's called freedom because there is not attachment to anything. And yet it doesn't mean escaping the world. And speaking of escaping the world, I wanted to read one more thing. Um, and I'm inspired to do this because, at least for me, another time when my mind can get very busy is when I contemplate the state of the world. And, you know, and I think particularly at this moment, um, you know, kind of related to some of the conflicts that are going on. Um, you know, I, I go to like, who's right? Who's wrong? Who did the worst thing? Who's doing the other worst thing? Um, what's the solution? Um, who should I listen to? What's the truth? And, um, and I can get caught up in that. And um, sometimes, again, somebody will just step outside of that or step beyond it. And um, this is a, a poem. Um, and it's a poem uh, that actually Jack Cornfield sent out, so some of you may have already seen it. It's by um, Rabbi Erwin Keller. So today, I am taking sides. I am taking the side of peace. Peace, which I will not abandon, even when its voice is drowned out by hurt and hatred, bitterness of loss, cries of right and wrong. I am taking the side of peace, whose name has barely been spoken in this winterless war. I will hold peace in my arms and share my body's breath, lest peace be added to the body count. I will call for de-escalation even when I want nothing more than to get even. I will do it in the service of peace. I will make a clearing in the overgrown thicket of cause and effect so peace can breathe for a minute and reach for the sky. I will do what I must to save the life of peace. I will breathe through tears. I will swallow pride. I will bite my tongue. I will offer love without testing for deservingness. So don't ask me to wave a flag today unless it is the flag of peace. Don't ask me to sing an anthem unless it is a song of peace. Don't ask me to take sides unless it is the sign of peace.
So that's where I'm going to stop. And um, I would be happy to take questions or comments. Um, Thank you, Owen. I wondered if you could um, maybe suss out the difference between liberation and escape. <laughs> um, well, I think <laughs> this is a funny answer, and I apologize a little bit. Um, it's kind of a gut feeling. Uh, it's kind of, you know, that's what I think. Um, that, you know, when you are escaping, and, and I do that, you know, I do that. I want to escape, and I do escape, and um, I know when I'm doing it. I can feel it. And um, when I let go, and that's often, you know, letting go of the same things that I'm trying to escape from um it's uh it does feel like freedom i guess that's what i have to say um so kabir thank you for your talk what is your take on embracing our fear as as you would embrace a wounded child that is because i believe that fear is also a one of the survival mechanisms that we we embody as a tool. Uh, growing up in a war-torn country, Afghanistan, and making through the journey of to America, I think fear plays a big role of our survival. Yeah. Um, and and I think fear also gives way to awareness. So I just want to take. Um, hear your take on the relationship between fear and awareness. Thank you. Um, thank you, Kabir. Um, as I said, I think these things are not things to get rid of. I mean, they are really important, and they are important for our survival, which is really important. Um, uh, but I also think, you know, that just like the mind can get overactive, our fear can, at times, not always, sometimes it really is essential and motivating and clarifying all of those things, um, you know, that we can let go of some of it. And, um, and really, that's all I can say. I, I totally agree with you that it's, it's really important. Thank you. I feel the same. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I felt very comforted 
by your talk. I felt like the words of wisdom and deep love and you know, I can feel a little door of confidence blossoming. You're always so kind. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Thank you. I, um, it's a profound talk for me. And I really appreciate what you had to say. It's been a hell of a year so far. My son-in-law, my former son-in-law, died um, a little over a month ago. After a month and a half of having retired, oh, so sorry. And I, um, you know, they're two very different people, Hosan and, and uh, Troy, uh, and. I'm so grateful that Hazan is with us and that we're with him so deeply and, uh, and that we have this community. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you so Oh, I'm sorry, Susan. Susan. Thanks for your talk, Ellen. It seems like some of our worst responses to fear may come when um, when we move towards wanting to control a situation in which fear arises. When Kabir was talking, I was thinking um, he and his family showed great courage to leave their country, you know, in a situation they couldn't control and that there's kind of space inside courage or, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty in moving, right, in coming, making that journey to the United States. So I wonder, kind of what you think about space inside fear and how we can embrace that. Well, I guess I sort of feel like um, uh, all of this is about, um, you know, having some space, maybe I would say around everything and um, you know, that that's for me kind of a gift of our practice. I would also say that control, I mean, I just think it's in our DNA. We, we do want to control things and to sort of step back from that a little bit, I guess, um, and sort of open up the possibilities. And, you know, I don't want to put words in Peter's mouth, but maybe opening up the possibility of leaving, um, you know, does seem like it really is helpful to me uh, and has been helpful to me. So I would probably agree with you, Susan. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So I cannot see your name, but I know who you are. Um, 
<laughs> Go ahead, Kurt. <laughs> Go ahead, Kurt. Yeah, so thank you for the uh, talk. I always enjoy hearing you and uh, resonate a lot with the importance of allowing those things to be there that are there, right? Like fear or a busy mind. And in a way, when I'm practicing and I have that space, it's easier to allow them to be there when I kind of realize that the, it's not a choice. They're not really mine in that kind of sense. Like it, if, it, if the fear was mine, then I could toss it off. Or if the busy mind was mine, then I could stop doing it. But these aren't things I can stop doing. Just like I can't stop the sun from coming up and going down or the birds from chirping. They're just things that are happening. And it's when I identify with them so much that I feel like I can control them that I start to have a lot of suffering around them. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Like you were talking about that space and maybe trying to be more of that space and not so identified with the things that emerge in it. Yeah, I I guess I would say for myself, and and I I do feel like this all evolves, you know, over time. Um, that you know, I I just think almost like the weight of it, or the um, urgency of it, or the you know putting all of our consciousness on our active mind or our fearful mind or our controlling mind. Um, you know, that's where I feel the liberation that the, you know, that it's there, you know, and it's, um, and it's doing what it does. But, um, you know, I just don't have to put all my attention on it. All my, I don't have to believe in it, I guess is sort of another way you could say it. Um, I, I've had experiences very, well, actually, I could say that when I was Shusou, I've probably told this story, but um, I, was, I had to give several talks and they made me very uneasy. And um, I went and saw Sotin and Nogasan, and I said, you know, I've been sitting Zazen all day, and all I'm thinking about is my talk. And, um, you know, I just can't stop. And he, he just looked at me, and he said, of course. You know, it was just like, of course it's going to happen. You know, it's just going to happen. And um, so that's been how it is for me. Like, I think it is for you, that sometimes when things are very intense, um, when somebody's very angry at me or has, you know, you know, something profound has happened. I, I'll just say, <laughs> yesterday, my daughter called and said that her baby had chewed on glass and swallowed it. And, um, you know, it's like, what's going to happen? You know, what's the doctor going to do? Do they have, you know, you might just gets busy and um, there's really not much you can do about it at, at certain times. Um, yeah, so we include it. We don't push it away. We don't go into it. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think so.
Go ahead. I've lost your picture and your voice, but um, I will say that again, you know, just these comments are just helpful. They're just they kind of elaborate or uh, fill out, um, you know, what I'm feeling and thinking and saying. So thank you, Ross. Thank you, thank you, Ellen. I was touched by your story of feeling love for Hozan after not having that feeling per se, but a, a certainly appreciation, thank you, uh, of him all those years, these years. This morning I read a story about Suzuki Roshi and a student, and the student said, when are you going to enlighten me? <laughs> and Suzuki Roshi responded, I'm trying as hard as I can. <laughs> Uh, so Hosan and I were ordained together, known each other a long time, and I didn't feel love, we just had a really good relationship in practice, supporting the practice. And when I um, went over to visit him, um, I felt similarly to you and going outside and all the appreciation. So in the spirit of Susan's comment about spaciousness, I I felt a spaciousness with Hozan being so vulnerable. And I think we need that space to really connect. But when, when the person is in front of us or in front of me, there's like this person there, it's kind of hard to get or feel the essence. So um, Hozan, thank you for enlightening us with your vulnerability and uh, your convalescence. Yes, and I would also say that we, you know, for some reason in that situation, maybe because of his vulnerability, we also drop our conditioned self, you know, and, you know, that's quite a wonderful experience. So, and thank you all, I think it's probably time. <laughs>